welcome to Come Follow Me with Bree, episode 100, Mourn with Those That Mourn. Hello, I'm so glad you're here. Episode 100, I'm so excited. I want to take just a couple of minutes. I'm, try, I'm going to try not to make this portion too long, but I do need to take a moment to thank people who have helped me get to my 100th episode. First and foremost, my husband. He has been so supportive this entire time. I remember when I first started, I didn't want to tell him what I was doing before I had already recorded an episode and and put it out there. I think I wanted I was a little embarrassed that I wanted to do this and that I thought people would listen and so I wanted to you know already have all of it figured out. I wanted to have an episode recorded. I wanted to have it out there on like, you know, a podcast service so I could show him like, okay, this is what I'm doing. And I, so, so I did that and I remember, I still remember the evening because he didn't know what I was doing. I went up into my room and I was like, I'll tell you after what I word, what I'm doing. And it was a few hours before I came down because I'd never recorded anything before. It took me a little while and it also took me a little while to figure out how to put an episode together and actually get it out there on the internet. Um, and I remember showing him for the first time and he has been nothing but completely supportive ever since. I don't know that he, if he thought that I would really uh, do this for, for years, I, I don't know how long he thought I would stick with it, but I myself am still shocked and kind of surprised that, that I'm here today, that, that I've gone for almost two years doing this. And a lot of that is due to his awesome support. Every Monday I, go into my room and I prepare the the podcast and he takes care of the kids for the evening without complaint. And he makes me feel when I go back there, when I take that time that of course I should be going back there and, and preparing this podcast because it's important and it's important to our family. And with that, the next people I want to thank are my children. My children have been so good with me preparing and doing this podcast. Anytime I'm preparing, they are willing to just kind of leave me alone so that I can get that done. And they are respectful, not just because I'm their mom and I force them to be, <laughs> but they love this podcast too. They know they have a testimony that it's important. And for that reason, they are also so supportive and I'm so thankful for them. There's a few other people that I want to really quickly mention. My friend Chelsea, she's one of my really good friends, and she just always calls me after she listens to an episode or messages me or whatever and just tells me how, how much she loved the episode and what she loved about it, and she'll share, and she has just been incredibly supportive. And in fact, yesterday, I uh, got a knock at my door, and it was DoorDash, and she had sent me a, an assible to help celebrate my 100th episode and also to help motivate me to record today. And it's just little things like that that just let me know that that what I am doing matter to matter to her and and affect her and that she's proud of me and she's just a good friend and she has meant so much to me and helped me keep going. Um, another person that I have really appreciated is my mom. I will call her and talk about gospel topics and uh, text her and ask her different questions about what she thinks about things. And she'll take some time to think about them and send me her thoughts. And I've used them in the podcast before. And she is just incredibly supportive. And the last 
person, people that I want to mention are you guys. There are so many random people that, that I don't know or people that I do know that have texted me or emailed me or messaged me on Instagram just to let me know that you enjoyed the episode or you enjoy the podcast and that it, that it means something to you. And those messages are not a small thing. They really touch me. They, they help me be motivated to keep going. They help me feel like what I'm doing makes a difference. And I really, truly appreciate it. And those messages has, have helped me keep going all of this time. And all of this time has been no small thing for me spiritually. These last couple of years have been an incredible time of growth for my testimony. So thank you truly for listening because you listening and keeping me going and all of these people who have been supporting me have helped support my testimony and my knowledge of the gospel growing as I as I study, as I think about what to say, as I get to bear my testimony every week. And it it has I can't even express how much this podcast has meant to me. So thank you truly for being here. Okay, let's get on to our episode for today. This week we are learning about Job. You know who Job is. The Job who was tested by Satan because Satan wanted to prove that he wasn't able to handle anything life could hand him if he lost his wealth and blessed life and still survived spiritually. The Job that the Lord references as he speaks to Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail saying, Thou art not yet as Job. Thy friends do not contend against thee, neither charge thee with transgression as they did Job. Something interesting about the book of Job is that we essentially don't have any context. We don't know when Job lived. Many theorize that he lived around the time of Abraham, so long time ago. Um, and actually, on that note, just so you are aware, we are at the end of the timeline of the Old Testament. At this point, we're going back to different times that sometimes we know and sometimes we don't know about who or when it was written. Um, but we have reached the end of that timeline. So now we're kind of more into the poetry section of the Old Testament. But back to Job, we don't really know who Job is or what his ancestry looks like. We don't even know if he was an Israelite. Now, there are lots of people who believe or will say that Job is simply a story made up to teach us lessons and explore important life questions. However, due to modern revelation and multiple references throughout scripture, we know that Job was actually a real man. The book of Job begins and ends with prose, which basically means speaking normally. And then the rest of the book in between those is poetry. Now, poetry in the Old Testament isn't really the way we think of poetry now. The Come Follow Me manual says it may help you to keep in mind that Hebrew poetry in the Old Testament isn't based on rhyme, like some other kinds of poetry. And although rhythm, wordplay, and repetition of sounds are common features in ancient Hebrew poetry, they are typically lost in translation. For this week, I'm not going to go into all the details of everything we learn about Job, so I encourage you to make sure you do the reading, go to other podcasts who do go into those details for that kind of recap. What I want to talk about is one specific part of Job's journey. Job is a wealthy, blessed man who, through a series of human-caused and natural disasters, loses everything. All his children are killed, he loses all his servants, all his property, all his flocks and herds, everything. And that's just the first chapter. The story is portrayed as though 
the reason all this happens is because Satan makes an arrangement with the Lord to test Job's loyalty. However, it's important to note that this interaction didn't actually happen. In the Old Testament seminary teacher manual, it says this, Point out that contrary to the account in Job, the Lord does not really make agreements with Satan. The conversations between the Lord and Satan in the book of Job are presented in a poetic narrative that emphasizes Satan's role as our adversary. In reality, the Lord has power over Satan and has no need to bargain with him. So the conversations between Satan and the Lord are just a narrative tool to help tell the story. The first chapter ends with some pretty faithful words from Job after he has lost everything. He says, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. In the second chapter, Satan, for the purposes again of narrating the story, says that Job won't be able to withstand being afflicted severely physically. So the Lord grants permission for Satan to try him in this way. Job gets boils from the bottom of his feet to the crown of his head, and which sounds, ugh, that sounds so terrible. Starting in verse 8 of chapter 2, it says, And he took him a potsherd, which basically means a broken piece of ceramic, to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What, shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. Isn't that such a beautiful testimony? If we're willing to receive good at the hand of God and praise him, we should also be willing to take the bad. Now, remember that Job was a very well-known man in his area, and his trials seem to have spread far and wide because three of his friends come to mourn with him and comfort him. Now, it's at this point in the story that I want to talk about how they mourn and comforted him. Just for the sake of clarity, the whole book of Job is essentially an, an intellectual journey where he has a conversation with these three friends, plus another one that shows up later. And in these conversations, they and Job are asking some pretty intense questions about existence and how bad things can happen to good people. And they get into some pretty heated debate where they are not always happy with each other during this debate. But what I want to focus on is what they did when they arrived to mourn with him. In chapter 2, starting in verse 12, it says, And when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept. And they rent every one his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. What Christ-like friends in this moment. When they saw him, he was essentially unrecognizable. And they cried and sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights and didn't speak, for they saw that his grief was very great. Now, like I said before, and like the Lord said in Liberty Jail, eventually these friends make some pretty harsh accusations toward Job as they have some heated conversations about life. But in this moment, they are showing Job what true friendship really is. And I love that they that the writer gives this reason why they didn't speak, because his grief was very great. I know we've all been in those moments where you have someone close to you who is in this depths of despair moment. 
And you can feel that your words are not what they need. They just need you to be there with them. It's pretty profound that one of the promises we make at baptism, the entry point to the path of exaltation, is that we agree to mourn with those who mourn. In Mosiah chapter 18, verses 8 through 9, it describes that covenant. And it came to pass that he said unto them, Behold, here are the waters of Mormon, for thus they were called. And now, as ye are desirous to come into the fold of God, and to be called his people, and are willing to bear one another's burdens, that they may be light, yea, and are willing to mourn with those that mourn, yea, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, and to stand as witnesses of God at all times, and in all things, and in all places, that ye may be even until death, that ye may be redeemed of God, and be numbered with those of the first resurrection, that ye may have eternal life. Sometimes I struggle with how to mourn with those who mourn. We all grew up with different experiences and different levels of comfort with expressing emotion and being emotionally close with people, especially people who are emotionally distressed. I wouldn't say that it's something I'm particularly good at. I I want to fix. I find myself wanting to change the subject because it's uncomfortable to sit in sadness especially in our modern day where we have been programmed to avoid discomfort at all costs. In developed countries, amazingly, thankfully, we are blessed to have incredible inventions that allow us to be physically comfortable. We have amazing mattresses. We have air conditioning that we can turn up and down literally to whichever degree we want it to be. We have food, so many blessings. And emotionally, we have programmed ourselves to distract ourselves away from discomfort. We have phones and TV, the internet, the news, music, endless entertainment, so that we don't just have to sit with the feeling of being bored or unhappy or really any negative feeling. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have negative feelings. I'm just saying that we have a lot of tools at our disposal to help distract us from uncomfortable feelings. We've even created virtual friendship If we choose not to, we no longer have to interact with people on a deeper level in person. And all of this is to say that it probably affects how effectively we are capable of sitting in the uncomfortable feeling of mourning with those who mourn. Can we just sit with those uncomfortable feelings and mourn? Not fix, not distract, just mourn. Pushing past the feeling of discomfort, we are so accustomed to avoiding and be willing to show deep emotion and be near someone and really be with them as they experience deep emotion. These friends of Job, they cried and sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights and didn't speak for they saw that his grief was very great. When Jesus learned about the death of Mary's brother Lazarus, he arrived seemingly too late, after Lazarus had died. John chapter 11, starting in verse 32. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. When Jesus wept, was he worried about what would happen in the future? No, he he knew what was about to happen. He knew he would raise Lazarus from the dead. And even if he wasn't going to raise him from the dead, 
he would have known that ultimately everything was going to be all right. But he mourned with his friends who were mourning. Jesus wept. The creator of the world wept with his friends because they were sad, because the situation was sad and hard. I want to tell you about my friend Becky. I helped take care of Becky the last few years of her life. She was my neighbor and my friend. Becky was in her mid-60s, and she had never married and had a myriad of health problems. She was severely overweight, which had only been made worse when she broke her back a few years previously. By the time I started helping Becky, her mobility was very limited. Her back had broken in a place that that had not left her without movement, but the recovery, which required that she lay in a particular position very still for about six months, had left her muscles so atrophied that she was never able to truly recover. Now, how I started helping Becky wasn't my finest hour. I had been asked by the Relief Society to go help her get into bed at midnight. The Relief Society sisters had been taking turns doing it, and I volunteered. When it came to my day, it didn't seem like a big deal because I'm a night owl anyway, but somehow that night I fell asleep before midnight. When I woke up in the morning, I realized that I had forgotten about Becky. I hadn't ever at this point even met Becky before as she was completely housebound, but I ran instantly to her house to check on her and she was not very happy with me. She had struggled to get into bed without my help that night and it was most certainly totally my fault. I didn't really know what to do at that point because I felt so bad. So I, I did something. I made her breakfast, which I could tell that she didn't actually like what I made. But initially I started helping Becky out of guilt and a sense of obligation, but eventually it became a true labor of love. We had lunch every Wednesday together and I helped her throughout the week with whatever else she needed. Becky didn't like very much to talk about touchy-feely things or how sad she was, and sometimes our visits were truly uncomfortable because she was either in extreme pain or discomfort, or we just really didn't have anything to talk about. Although we laughed and talked about lighthearted things, Becky was sad, and obviously she knew it, and I knew it, and she knew I knew it. It often felt as though I was just there to sit in that with her. She was eventually moved to a rehab center and she deteriorated pretty quickly. She died right toward the beginning of COVID, which ultimately I'm so grateful for because no one was able to visit her the last several weeks of her life because of COVID. And although I feel like much of mine and others role in her life was to sit in that grief with her, It was a beautiful bond and a sacred experience both for me and for her. It was a sacred experience for me to get to know Becky. It wasn't always an easy or comfortable experience, but sacred for sure. I learned to see her as well as I could, how Heavenly Father sees her and how the Savior sees her. And that was only possible because I sat with her in that grief. And I know that being witness to and being present with her grief lightened that load for her. And it for sure didn't take it away by any means, but it made it lighter and more bearable. I am so excited for life after this life when I can continue to develop that relationship with her in a different way. And I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to spend that time with her because not only did it bless her, but it gave me so much in return. 
Elder Renland said this, In the church, to effectively serve others, we must see them through a parent's eyes, through Heavenly Father's eyes. Only then can we begin to comprehend the true worth of a soul. Only then can we sense the love that Heavenly Father has for all of His children. Only then can we sense the Savior's caring concern for them. We cannot completely fulfill our covenant obligation to mourn with those who mourn and comfort those who stand in need of comfort unless we see them through God's eyes. This expanded perspective will open our hearts to the disappointments, fears, and heartaches of others. Only when we see through Heavenly Father's eyes can we be filled with the pure love of Christ. Every day we should plead with God for this love. Mormon admonished, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart, that ye may be filled with this love, which he hath bestowed upon all who are true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ. This is one of my favorite things to do, and it's something that I've asked Heavenly Father before, and he always comes through when I'm looking at someone and struggling to feel connected, or or perhaps I'm struggling with someone because I I don't love their personality, or I'm angry with them, or you know whatever the situation may be. And I ask him to see them the way that he sees them. And I don't think it's a perfect vision by any means, but it truly changes. As soon as I'm trying to look at someone as a son or daughter of God who is loved and valued, it changes the way you see them. I can remember vivid moments looking at my friend Becky and trying to see her as God saw her. And it was beautiful. And she was beautiful. I want to end with a quote from Elder Eyring, and it's actually a pretty long quote, but he touches on some things that are so applicable to this and so good. He said, You have seen such tests in the lives of good people you love. You have felt a desire to help them. There is a reason for your feeling of compassion for them. Alma described in his words at the Waters of Mormon what you promise to do at baptism and what it will mean to you and everyone around you, especially in your families. He was speaking to those who were about to make the covenants you have made, and they also received the promise that the Lord made to you. Behold, here are the Waters of Mormon, for thus they were called. And now, as ye are desirous to come into the fold of God and to be called his people and are willing to bear one another's burdens that they may be light. Yea, and are willing to mourn with those that mourn. Yea, and comfort those who stand in need of comfort. And to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places. That ye may be in even until death. That ye may be redeemed of God and be numbered with those of the first resurrection. That ye may have eternal life. That is why you have a feeling of wanting to help a person struggling to move forward under a load of grief and difficulty. You promised that you would help the Lord make their burdens light and be comforted. You were given the power to help lighten those loads when you received the gift of the Holy Ghost. When he was about to be crucified, the Savior described the way he helps lighten loads and gives strength to carry them. He knew that his disciples would grieve. He knew that they would fear for their future. He knew that they would feel uncertain of their capacity to move forward. So he gave them the promise that he makes to us and all his true disciples. And I will pray to the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Recently, three generations of a family were grieving the death of a five-year-old boy. He died accidentally while his family was on vacation. I was granted the opportunity to watch once again how the Lord blesses the faithful with relief and strength to endure. I watched the way the Lord made their great burden lighter. 
I was with them as the Lord's covenant servant, as you will often be in your life, to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. Because I knew that was true, I was pleased and at peace when the grandparents invited me to meet with them and the parents of the little boy before the funeral. I prayed to know how I could help the Lord comfort them. They sat down with me in our living room. I had warmed the room on a cold night with a small fire in the fireplace. I had felt to tell them that I loved them. I told them that I had felt the Lord's love for them. In just a few words, I tried to tell them that I mourned for them, but that only the Lord knew and could experience perfectly their pain and grief. After saying those few words, I felt impressed to listen with love while they talked about their feelings. In the hour we sat together, they spoke far more than I did. I could feel in their voices and see in their eyes that the Holy Ghost was touching them. In words of simple testimony, they spoke of what happened and how they felt. The Holy Ghost had already given them the peace that comes with the hope of eternal life, when their son, who died without sin, could be theirs forever. We lighten the loads of others best by helping the Lord strengthen them. That is why the Lord included in our charge to comfort others the command to be his witnesses at all times and in all places. The father and mother of the little boy bore witness of the Savior that evening in my living room. The Holy Ghost came and all were comforted. The parents were strengthened. The burden of grief did not disappear. But they were made able to bear the sorrow. Their faith increased and their strength will continue to grow as they ask for it and live for it. The Spirit's witness of the atonement that came that night also strengthened Job to carry his load. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in the flesh I shall see God. It was that witness of the Spirit that gave him strength to endure. He would pass through mourning and the lack of comfort from people around him to see the joy that would come to the faithful after passing faithfully through their trials. It was true for Job. Blessings came to him in this life. The story of Job ends with this miracle. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. And in all the land there were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. And this lived Job a hundred and forty years, and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died, being old and full of days. It was the witness of the spirit of the coming atonement which saw Job through the test life is intended to include for all of us. That is part of the great plan of happiness the Father gave us. He allowed his Son to provide, by his atoning sacrifice, that hope that comforts us no matter how hard the way home to him may be. The Father and the Son send the Holy Ghost to comfort and strengthen disciples of the Master in their journey. I can know only partially how much he feels joy each time you, as his disciple, help him bring a moment of peace and joy to a child of our Heavenly Father. I bear my witness that the Lord has asked each of us, his disciples, to help bear one another's burdens. We have promised to do it. I bear my testimony that the Lord, through his atonement and resurrection, has broken the power of death. I give my witness that the living Christ sends the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, to those we are pledged to help him comfort. You are all witnesses, as I am, of the truth of the inscription on the on the pin my mother wore for more than 20 years as a member of the Relief Society General Board. It read, Charity never faileth. I still do not know the full meaning of those words, but I have caught a glimpse as I saw her reach out to those in need. 
The scripture tells us this truth. Charity is the pure love of Christ. His love never fails, and we will never cease to feel in our hearts the urge to mourn with those who mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. Nor will the peace he promises ever leave us as we serve others for him. As his witness, I extend gratitude for what you do so well to help the living Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, strengthen feeble knees and lift up hands that hang down. I love that Elder Eyring is pointing out here that our only job is to help bring the Holy Ghost to the people that we are trying to comfort. And often, like Job's friends, that is just being there and sitting with them in that grief. Now, Job's friends, as as the Lord said in Liberty Jail to Joseph Smith, eventually they, they turned into kind of a problem, although Job does forgive them and the Lord forgives them. So let's do better than that. Let's sit with our friends in grief and then continue to follow the directions of the Spirit to know how we can help them best next. But the best way, as Elder Eyring just pointed out, is just to bring the Spirit into their life. Because ultimately, he is a much better comforter than we ever could be. Our job is to be there. Be there with the pure love of Christ. And if we're there with a pure love of Christ, the true comforter, the Holy Ghost, will be there with us and with them. If we are there with the intent of seeing our brothers and sisters as he sees them and to sit with them in their heart, We are being true disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus' plea after asking Simon if he loved him three times was, Feed my sheep. And I guess if I'm going to summarize all of this in one way, sometimes feeding his sheep in their hardest times looks like this. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him for they saw that his grief was very great. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.